Let's see, Arlington, good morning. How you doing this morning? We good? All right, got a Bible with you. Go ahead and turn to Mark 14. Uh, Mark 14. Uh, we're going to be uh, starting at verse 12, and we'll head down to verse 21 this morning. Mark 12, I mean Mark 14, 12 through uh, 21. And so I'm Eric, location pastor here. Uh, it is good to be with you this morning to open God's word and to consider uh, what he has for us uh, this morning. Uh, but um, I'm even more glad that our families are in here uh, today. And so it might be a little bit louder and more lively than usual, and we like that um, because the sounds of children are not a distraction. Uh, the sounds of children are the sounds of life. And so I do want to give a word to our parents uh, here uh, this morning because I know often when you bring your kids to uh, church and we have a family worship Sunday, you can often leave feeling, man, like my kid was distracted and uh, I was distracted by them, and I don't know if it was even worth it, us coming today. Uh, but I, I do want to tell you guys this. Um, you and your children are getting more out of this than you know in the moment. Like, you, you, can't, you can't always know what your kids are getting out of service each Sunday. And there is something that they are getting from watching the saints sing worship songs to Jesus uh, there's something that they're getting and receiving about the importance of God's word by looking around and seeing other saints in rapt attention to his word. And there's something that they're receiving when they watch all of the saints come together and take the Lord's Supper together. We can't always predict what our children are learning and, 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 and getting out of service. And so I invite you to always, when we have gatherings like this, to bring your children in faith, Right? knowing um, that he's doing something that you don't even know in their hearts. And so I wanted to encourage you guys with that. Uh, if you've been with us, you know we've been in the book of Mark in a series titled Following Jesus. And so, um, man, we're going to consider who he is and what, and what he's done for us. And I want you to know this, that the kind of life that he offers you is so much better than the life that you create on your own. I hope you realize that as we read through the book of Mark. And so let's do this. Let's read the text, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to consider what the scriptures are telling us this morning. So Mark 14, verse 12, here we go. It says, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where would you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, surely I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it's one of the 12, one who was dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would, be, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And this is the word of God. And let's take a moment to pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to know you through, your, uh, through you revealing yourself in your word this morning. 
And so, Father, I pray that we will listen this morning. God, I am a weak person with feeble lips. I have absolutely nothing to say and no capacity to keep these people's attention. But, Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that their attention will not be on me but on your word. Father, I pray that we'll be a people who sit beneath your word and understand that whenever your word is open, you want to say something to us. None of us are exempt. So, Father, I pray that we will listen to your word and respond to it in the way that we should in faith and obedience this morning. God, help us. We need you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. If you agree, say amen. Amen. All right, y'all. Yesterday, uh, well, today is July 2nd. Yesterday um, was July 1st. And I know every single year um, that there's at least one person in America on July 1st who is smiling from ear to ear. Uh, He's a baseball player, and his name is Bobby Bonilla. Bobby Bonilla. If you're a baseball fan, you might know why he's smiling, because he's grinning, because on July 1st of every year, Bobby Bonilla gets paid $1.2 million. And you might think that Bobby gets paid by the New York Mets, the team that pays him, that he might, he probably gets paid because he's a great baseball player. That's not the case. Bobby Bonilla is 60 years old. He does not play baseball. He did play baseball because back in the day, he did play for the New York Mets. And back in 1999, his play wasn't so great, so the team decided to buy out his contract. Pretty much to buy out somebody's contract, that means that his play was so mediocre that they were paying him to go away. Like, they were paying him, they said, here's your money, please leave our team. But in order for the buyout to go into effect, Bobby had to agree to the buyout. So pretty much the team set him down, and they said, Bobby, your play hasn't been that great. We're going to pay you to leave. And Bobby had to sit in that room and agree with them. Yes, my play has not been uh, that great. Um, And so um, for the buyout to actually happen. But the problem was this. The team owed him $5.9 million. But instead of simply um, paying him the money then, the Mets decided on a, um, a different kind of arrangement. They decided to defer his payment. Um, So the team felt confident in the outlook of some financial investments that the team had made, right? Um, And so they said, Bobby, do us a favor. Instead of us paying you now in 1999, can we defer paying you until 2011? And what we'll do is we'll pay you $1.2 million every year on July 1st from 2011 to 2035. He he said amen. I know Bobby said amen too. (laughs) And it's crazy. Bobby started getting paid $1.2 million in 2011, and he will be 72 years old, still getting blessed. Why? Because there was one day in 1999 that he admitted that his play was weak. Sometimes it is good to admit that you're weak. And here's the thing. That's true of Bobby Bonilla, and that's true of you too. Uh, Mark 14, we are getting closer to the cross. Jesus is making a beeline towards Gethsemane. He's making a beeline uh, to the Roman cross. And in our text today, the disciples, they're confronted with their own weakness. And it's one of the best things that could ever happen to them. See, this section of Mark, um, especially from verse 17 to verse 31, it includes one of the literary devices that we were talking about last week. Um, It's what theologians call a Markan sandwich. And and it's where, where Mark would insert a story within a story. He does it again this week in order to prove a point. 
And this particular sandwich, we're actually going to talk about it over the course of three weeks. And so honestly, today, we're just getting to the first piece of bread. Uh, but in this sandwich, um, it, it's the story of the Lord's Supper, if you have your Bibles, in verses 20 through the 20, 22 through 25. And the Lord's Supper is sandwiched in between all this talk about betrayal. Verse 17 through 21, Jesus tells everyone um, that, that one of his disciples is actually going to betray him. And then in verses 26 to 31, we see how, G how the rest of the disciples Jesus predicts are going to desert him. And in the middle, Jesus is constituting this Lord's Supper. And he's around the table with all these people that will fail him. And we're going to get to the Lord's Supper in more detail next week. But this sandwich, like I told you guys last week, is meant to teach us something incredibly important about discipleship. This is something that we need to learn. And on this sandwich, we're going to chew on it um, over the next couple of weeks. Y'all get that? Like Mark and Sandwich, we're going to chew on it. Y'all don't get it? Okay, cool. All right. But this is something we need to learn. Here it is. Jesus invites the weak to have a seat at his table. Jesus invites the weak to have a seat at his table. And if you don't know this today, this is incredibly good news because guess what? You're weak. Guess what? I'm weak. And it is so good that Jesus doesn't call us to measure up to him in order to be in his presence, in order to love him, in order to experience the blessing, the great blessings of fellowship with him. We can show up simply admitting that we're weak. Our weakness is a ticket to fellowship with God. It's okay to be weak. So we're going to work our way verse by verse through this text and by way of verse 12. Let's look at it. It says, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. His disciples said to him, where would you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So y'all, let's talk about the Passover real quick. We talked about it last week. Uh, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was this week-long celebration, this week-long family reunion where people would gather together, the Jews, and remember how God reached down all those years ago into Egypt and to their, uh, to their ancestors who were steeped in slavery uh, under the hard hand of Pharaoh and rescued them with a mighty, right, uh, with a mighty and righteous hand. And it was a feast of celebration. And the disciples knew that Jews participated in this feast. It was time for that. Um, and um, if you're trying to keep um, uh, um, track of the timeline, um, this is Thursday. And Jesus would be crucified on Friday. This is a meal that they're going to observe. And look at verse 13. It says, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Let me show you guys something. So in this text, Jesus, if you don't catch it, Jesus flexes his omniscience. Because all the disciples say here is, hey, Jesus, where are we going to eat the Passover meal that we're supposed to eat? And I love it because Jesus tells them where to find a spot. It's interesting how he does it. He doesn't give turn-by-turn -turn directions. Right? He doesn't give street signs. He doesn't say, turn on Galilee Road, hang a right on Jerusalem Boulevard, and there you'll find the spot. He doesn't say that. 
And that's how we do it because street signs don't change. I love what Jesus does. He doesn't use street signs. You know what he uses? He uses random people. I love this. In the text, he says, go to the city, and you're going to see a dude on the corner, a guy carrying a water jar, which was weird anyway because in that day, it was women that carried water jars. Men never carried them. Right? And so, and, and so it's interesting. And Jesus not only tells them, hey, find this random guy. You'll see him when you walk into the city. Um, but he also tells them that when you encounter the owner of the house, he actually says what this guy's going to say and do. He says, this man's going to show you a large upper room, and there's going to be a place where we, where we have the Passover. And my question is, how would Jesus know all of that? How would he? Hang with me. There are times in the Gospels where Jesus, he often just gives you a little peek of his divinity. You see, when Jesus put on flesh in Philippians chapter 2, um, it, it says that Christ, God in the flesh, he emptied himself. What that means is that when Jesus came to earth, he, he, he intentionally set aside aspects of his divinity and he voluntarily accepted the limits of humanity. So what that means today is this, is that Jesus, by nature of being God and being omnipresent, what he did when he put on flesh is that he chose to localize himself to a human body. Even Jesus, by nature of being God, he's omniscient. However, there were times in the Gospels where Jesus claimed that he didn't know the future. But with that said, there are times in which Jesus thought that this is a good opportunity for me to allow the people around me to get a peek into who I actually am, that I'm God in the flesh. And Jesus does it right here before the Passover meal. Why is that? Because it is likely, hang with me, it is likely that Jesus needed to demonstrate something to his disciples that he needs to often demonstrate to us. You see, he knew that in a few short hours, the disciples were going to think that everything was spinning out of control. And see, Jesus soon, he was going to be betrayed, he was going to be crucified, the movement was going to feel like it was completely over. And I love it because in a season where the disciples are tending to believe that everything is spinning out of control, Jesus flexes his omniscience in order to demonstrate that everything that's happening is happening within my knowledge and within my control. This is what's happening. He's showing that he's in complete control. He's using the horrible events of Holy Week in order to accomplish the greatest thing that the world has ever seen. And this should be an encouragement to every single person in this room this morning. And this is why. Because if you live long enough, there are going to be moments in life where you're going to feel like things are completely spinning out of control. There are going to be moments in life where you're going to feel like, man, this was not according to plan. Everything is happening horribly. Does God, does God see me? You're going to feel like you're spiraling. But this should be an encouragement because this demonstrates that Jesus knows exactly what you're going through right now. And if you're in Christ, Jesus also knows the glory to come. And he also knows how to get you from where you are to the glory to come. He knows that. You can trust him. So let's continue with this theme of Jesus, with Jesus knowing the future. Look at verse 17. It says that when it was evening, he came to the 12. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful. And they said to him one after another, 
is it I? So listen, Jesus and the disciples, they're at dinner together. They are, uh, they are reclining with one another. And let me tell you a little bit about the nature of having a meal, a meal together in the ancient Near East. Hear me out. Eating a meal together was much more than you being hungry at the same time, right? Like, that's kind of how we eat meals together. I don't really like you, but you hungry, I'm hungry, let's go eat. But in the ancient Near East, it, it was not like that at all. If you shared a meal with somebody, it was a sign of social solidarity. It was someone identifying with a group of people that they were eating with. So when you ate with someone, it was you declaring that these people are my people. And this is why it was so scandalous in Jesus's ministry where the religious elite often accused Jesus of eating with sinners because in eating with them, he was identifying with them. And I love it because Jesus here, listen to this, he, he, he identifies and shows solidarity with a group of people that he already knows are going to sell him out. You see, in this text, Judas, he knows that Judas will betray him, and he also knows, even down, we'll get to this later on um, in a couple of weeks, he knows in verse 26 that all the rest of the disciples are going to desert him. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is that even though he knows that's going to happen, he still calls them friends, he still calls them disciples, and he still invites them to have a seat at his table. And this is beautiful about Jesus. I love it. There is an open invitation to sit at the table of Jesus Christ. And this is beautiful because when you start to think about all the tables, so to speak, that exist in our world, I think about if you want to sit at, the, at a table at the state dinner in D.C., you got to be powerful. To sit at the table down on the floor when you're watching the Emmys or the Oscars, you got to be talented, right? To sit at the table of a boardroom in any company, you got to be a boss. However, to sit with Jesus, to be a friend of Jesus is so different than that. It's not about measuring up. It's not about proving yourself. You get to sit at the table of Jesus by simply admitting that you're weak and that you are in desperate need of his grace. I love it. Weakness is the ticket to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ. Weakness is the prerequisite to receive the grace of God. And the question I have this morning is, are you willing to admit that you're weak? Are you willing to admit that? See, in this text, it seems like this is what Jesus is trying to help his disciples come face to face with. He's trying to help them to understand that they are weak. Look at verse 18 again. It says, as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. I want to call your attention to something. So during this dinner, Jesus drops a bombshell. The very people he's eating with, he's saying, one of you guys is going to dine me out. One of you is going to betray me. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus doesn't say who. If Jesus knows where they're going to have the Passover meal, if Jesus knows that somebody is going to betray him, guess what? He knows who's going to, he knows, he knows who. Why doesn't he tell them who is going to betray him? Why is that? I think we actually see it in light of verse 19. Verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? Is it I? Here's the thing. I think that Jesus is, what he's doing here, he's causing the disciples to question their own hearts and to consider that they are capable of far worse than they think they are. 
They're capable of far worse than they think they are. The disciples begin to question themselves. They begin to ask, is it me? All this to say, Jesus uses the statement that he's going to be betrayed as an instrument to bring his people face to face with their own weakness. To help them understand that they are not as strong as they think they are. To bring them face to face with their capacity to sin. Because in our pride, let me tell you, we often don't see our weakness until somebody holds a mirror up to it. It reminds me of a YouTube video I just watched, man. I, uh, it was a YouTube video at a gym, right? And it, it was an attractive woman who was standing at the door of the gym, and she was asking guys as they walked in, how much can you bench press? And I already knew how the video was going to go, because anytime a guy says how much he can actually bench press, you want to go ahead and, and, and subtract 60 pounds from that, and that's how much he actually can, Right? So she's at the door asking all these guys, how much can you bench press? And they're saying, I can do 380 on the bench press. And man, they stack it on the bench press. And they say, prove it, right? And so you see these guys laying under, the, uh, laying under the bench, and they're trying to struggle to actually lift their weights. And more often than not, all of them were unsuccessful, right? Um, and so it's so interesting that these guys laid down underneath the bar with the weight that they declared that they could lift, and they struggled and strained, and they were forced to admit that their numbers were off. See, everyone thought they could lift the weight until they laid underneath the bar. And what's interesting about this statement that Jesus gives is that in his omniscience, Jesus predicts that somebody's going to betray him. What he's doing in that moment is that he's putting loyalty to him on the bar, and he's looking at all of his disciples in the eye, and he's asking them, can you lift that? And every one of them in that moment begins to question their own strength. They begin to say, is it I? Is it I? And in, if we're honest today, we should be asking the same question. We may not be Judas, but hear me today. You are also capable of betraying Jesus. You are capable of great sin. And it is so easy to look around the world and to see people doing a variety of things. And it's so easy for you to say, I could never do that. But let me tell you today, that's not true. Robert Machane actually put it this way, and I think he's right. The seed of every sin lies in every human heart. The seed of every sin lies in every human heart. Our hearts are capable of the unimaginable, and Jesus wants us to know that. He wants them to know that. He wants us to know that. You know what he wants us to do? He wants us to recognize our weakness in light of our capacity to sin. When you recognize that you are capable of the very things that you're tempted to judge other people of, guess what it does? It makes you humble. It makes you humble. We are capable of great sin, guys, and it doesn't even take all that much. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus says, he goes a step further. He says, when they say, is it I? He says, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So it's interesting here, apparently there's more than the 12 disciples in the room with Jesus during the Last Supper. Because Jesus feels the need in this text, right, to go from, hey, um, hey, when are you going to betray me, to narrow it, narrowing it down to his 12 closest disciples, to his closest companions. And the question we should have is, why might he do that? Because here's the thing, I want you to think about the 12 and what you know about them. You see, throughout the Gospels, being one of the 12 was a badge of honor. The 12 believed that they were going to get glory, they were going to get amazing things, 
as a result of their association with Jesus Christ. Throughout the whole gospel, you constantly saw, you, you, you constantly saw the pride of the disciples. You, you constantly saw them um, trying to guard other people from getting closer to Jesus because they were. Because they thought that glory was coming as a result of knowing Jesus Christ. They thought that their lives were going to be up and to the right. However, they had no conception that Jesus would suffer and die on the Roman cross, even though Jesus constantly told them that he would. They had left everything for following Jesus Christ. And I think during this season, it began to dawn on them that this is not going to end well. Jesus is al he's already made mad the temple elite. They already know the plot to kill him. They don't know who's going to betray him yet. And they begin to understand that Jesus, if what he says always come to pass, all that talk about his death is going to actually happen. And being one of the 12 ceased to be a badge of honor to them. Being one of the 12 was actually going to be the source of shame. And I think at this point, they realized that our lives walking with Jesus, it might not involve glory. It actually might involve suffering. And in the call out, Jesus wants them to understand this, and he wants us to understand this. That realizing, you need to realize your weakness in light of your fragile circumstances. Where am I going with this? You don't realize how much following Jesus is dependent on your circumstances. Many of us don't realize how much of our zeal to follow Jesus is based on the fact that life is going well right now. For many of us right now, we um, are one phone call away, one breakup away, one peace slip away from doing what we said we would never do. And part of what it means to follow Jesus, listen to me this morning, is to follow him not based on what he can give you, but based on the fact that he's already given you himself. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And if you're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, we, all of us in this room, we are too weak to fully realize that. Even the best of us, when we get caught in the, bad, in, in the worst of circumstances, it becomes really easy for us to reject Jesus rather than walking with him through it. So what does all this mean this morning? Jesus wants us to be a people to admit that we are weak. And why, why am I encouraging to recognize your weakness this morning? This is why. It's because it's only when you are weak and know that you are that you're actually able to rely on the strength of Jesus Christ. Jesus identifies not with the strong, not with those who think they have it all together. Jesus identifies with those who are weak and he's able to give you what you need. This is what Passover is actually all about in this text. He came to a people in Egypt who were incredibly weak. They could not get themselves out of slavery. <laughs> They were under the strong hand of, of Pharaoh, and yet God reached down and rescued them, not by their strength, but by his. And he still does the same thing today. Jesus is the one that rescues us. We were dead in our sin and trespasses. We could not rescue ourselves from the predicament that we were in. And because our sin against God, and because he's holy and just and perfect, we deserve eternal condemnation. We deserve his wrath because he's perfect. But I want you to pay attention to Romans 5, 6. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hear me this morning. I am so grateful in my life that Christ came to die for the weak. I am so grateful for that this morning, that he came for sinners because I am one. Christ came, and this verse says that he died taking the punishment that you and I so deserve for our sin. And not, he did not only stay dead, he rose again, giving anyone the opportunity to receive him, to have a seat at his table by admitting that we are weak, admitting that we are sinful, and trusting in his free gift of salvation. Listen, salvation is the greatest blessing that you can receive, and it only comes to those who are willing to admit that we are weak. Are you willing to admit your weakness? That's the perfect place to receive grace. So I love Paul. Paul was once a proud man, and he found his justification in the world based off of all of his accomplishments. If you ask Paul what made him so great, he would go down the list of all the things he was able to accomplish in life. But the moment that he met Jesus, he stopped bragging about his strengths, and he began to boast in his weaknesses. There's one line in 2 Corinthians 12, I love this line, where he declares, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, because that's when the power of Christ rests on me. So my thought about all this is this, are you willing to admit your weakness? If only Judas did this. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, it says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Man, you guys can go to come back up. First, I do want to say this. That it's so interesting when Jesus says that somebody will betray him and he doesn't say who. It's so interesting that the disciples immediately say, is it I? They don't immediately look at, G at Judas and say, it must be him. Right? You see, for us sitting on this side, we know it's already Judas. But for them, they were looking at Judas and they saw his behavior as being no different than his. Judas was close to Jesus. He was proximate to Jesus. Judas did all the things that they did as well, and yet Judas did not reach out and receive the grace of God. And that should tell us something. That should tell us that just because you were proximate to Jesus, just because you made a profession of faith when you were five years old or 10 years ago, uh, that alone does not, that does not ensure you that you've actually displayed your weakness and reached out for the grace of God. But what's interesting about this text, as the band comes up, is that this text, is a, verse 21 is a little bit confusing because verse 21 talks about God's sovereignty, right? So at the beginning of verse 21, uh, it says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, that the God's plan of salvation has been known since the beginning of eternity. And yet at the end of this verse, it says, woe to the man. Woe to the man for whom, uh, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So the question we should have when we look at this text is, how is Judas responsible if Jesus always knew that he would be betrayed? And there's a whole lot I can say here about divine responsibility and, 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 and uh, divine sovereignty and our responsibility, but I don't have time this morning. Uh, we'll talk about it next week or in a couple of weeks when we have, uh, when we have uh, video preaching and David gets to preach. Um, but I'll keep it short. Jesus here is saying this. 
He's saying, yes, I came here to die, and my death is a part of God's plan of salvation from eternity's past. And that's what he means by the Son of Man, um, by, by the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Jesus is definitely going to die, and yet Judas makes a free choice. God didn't make Judas participate. God would have still accomplished his purposes through some other means, but Judas in that moment, because of his sinful desires, he made a personal decision to choose sin rather than surrender to Jesus. And even after that, he made the personal decision to not admit his weakness and to take a hold of God's grace. That's a dangerous place to be in. And the question that I have for you is, is that a place that you're going to remain in? Are you willing to admit your weakness so you can take a hold of God's grace? As I close, everywhere in life tells you that in order to receive your greatest blessings, you have to make a show of strength. Everywhere in life, it tells you that. So you want a job, you got to have a strong resume. You want a date, you got to have a strong hinge profile. You want friends, you have to demonstrate strong qualities to add value to other people's lives so that they'll be your friend. That's a lot of weight. And I know for many of you guys, you are exhausted and tired of always having to be strong. Even if you, even if you ascribe to another religion, most religions say you got to be strong in order for God to accept you. But you know the beautiful thing about Christianity? That Jesus knows that you're tired and weary of trying to be perfect. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Because the prerequisite of being a part of the body of Christ, of being a Christian, is not you displaying your strength. It's you coming to him in weakness. Will you do that? Jesus says, it's okay to be weak. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Let's take a moment to pray together. Father, we love you. And we are so grateful that we can be a people who display that we are weak, and it's when we are weak that we are able to take hold of your grace. Father, thank you for showing us in this text when you, uh, Jesus, you intentionally bring your disciples face to face with their own weakness and their incapability of following you of their own so that many of them, most of them, will reach out to your grace to receive the strength that they need to follow you. May we do the same. We love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.